Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the second epistle of Peter. We will discuss Jesus' second coming and other end-time events, false teaching in our churches, and what we are commanded to do in light of these things. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't I open us in prayer? Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our study of Second Peter, which we will conclude today. And just thank you for telling us in your word what the end looks like. So we shouldn't be surprised. We know exactly where things are headed. As you've outlined, we don't know all the details. But with that, we should have tremendous confidence in you. We should not let what's going on around us in this crazy world distract us. We just ask that you use the lesson today in a way to just keep us focused on you. That's the real game and keep us from spending all our time worrying about things that aren't ultimately going to help bring glory to you and build your kingdom. I ask that you speak through me and others who speak up today. Just guide our discussion and we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so we're finishing up another book today, 2 Peter. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, the last chapter there. Peter is going to conclude in his second letter here by answering the false claims of the false teachers who were saying that Christ wasn't coming back. They were basically saying, we've been waiting, nothing's ever happened, he's not coming back. And what Peter is going to explain is that Christ's return is guaranteed There will be future judgment. It's certain. I saw one commentator. I didn't go back and actually verify this, but I think it to be true. Every book in the New Testament refers to Christ's second coming other than two books, Philemon and the third epistle of John, which I thought that was interesting. But believers know Christ is going to return and that there is going to be judgment. We talked about this, our judgment as believers. We go before the judgment seat of Christ. That's not judgment for our salvation. Our salvation is assured as believers. We are judged in order to determine our rewards and our responsibilities that we will have in the kingdom. Non-believers, and we're going to spend some time talking about that today, go before the great white throne judgment, and as we'll see, none of them make it. And we'll talk more about that as we go. So let's dig in. Let's begin in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. We know this is the second letter. He's probably referring to the first letter that we studied, his first epistle as the first letter. He says, I'm writing in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. We're going to see, he's saying that he, the Old Testament prophets, the scriptures from the Old Testament, as well as the apostles, they've all been talking about this. This is nothing new. The second coming of Christ in this judgment that's coming, this is not new. The second coming of Christ was a little shrouded in the Old Testament. It wasn't clear that there were going to be two comings of Christ, but certainly the judgment was clear and that his return was clear. He says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So the Old Testament prophets, they spoke about it as well as Jesus, as well as Peter and the other apostles. Now, 
Peter and the apostles at that time generally believed that Christ's return was going to happen fairly quickly. And here we are 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. So this is still applicable because what you're going to see some of the false prophets were saying, we still hear that today. Like, yeah, right. You've been believing that for all this time. He's still not back, really. Aren't you getting tired of that? But Peter's saying he's reminding everyone that they've heard it before. They heard it from the Old Testament scriptures and they heard it from the apostles. Verse 3, know this first of all, so know this as a priority, that in the last days, and last days means the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So that's even in these days. These are the last days. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. So these are people who seek to undermine the church's belief in Christ's return. They make fun of it. They want to follow their own lust and their own personal freedoms and deny that God will bring judgment. Verse 4, it says, And saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, and that's probably referring to the Old Testament patriarchs, ever since they even passed on, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We've heard this before. Yeah, where's Jesus? Nothing has changed. And it's so false just their whole premise is wrong because they say, yeah, it's always been the same the way it always has been. And you're going to see he's going to refer to creation. So somebody had to create it. And then he's going to refer to the flood. Let me read on and then I'll come back to this. But what Peter is going to be talking about is, first of all, God is involved. He does intervene. And he's going to give some examples on that. And there will be a judgment. And the people who believe this, They believe the earth just sort of operates through these natural processes. They don't think God can intervene. They deny God's creation. They deny the flood, for example. They don't acknowledge that the earth went through severe change from the flood. When God actually poured out his judgment then, that was the flood judgment. Of course, when the flood came, Noah's flood, it had never even rained before. And then judgment came. And I'm going to show you, let's just flip over there and look at some of that because I think it is instructive. God does intervene in world order. He did it before. He's going to do it again. The judgment of the flood, that was a flood judgment. The next judgment is going to be with fire. God made a covenant with Noah, with us, and said he'd never destroy the earth again with a flood, but he's going to destroy it with fire this time. Let's go over to Genesis I'm not going to go through the whole flood story, but let me just show you a couple of verses to highlight it. If you go over to Genesis chapter 6, and let me just start in in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And then we go over to chapter 7, and let me start in verse 21. And this is after the flood. It says, And all the flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were there with him in the ark. 
So only Noah and seven people, eight survivors. So that was tremendous judgment. And then skip down to chapter 8, verse 21. And so after the flood is over, Noah built an altar to give an offering to God. You can see in verse 20 and then verse 21. And the Lord smelled the smoothing aroma of this sacrifice. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. He's really talking about through the flood, and then go over to chapter 9, verse 11, and it says, And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. So the rainbow was given as a sign of that covenant. Whenever I see a rainbow, I think of that. It's a beautiful thing, but that was God's covenant that he will not destroy the earth by flood again. But he is going to destroy the earth by fire, and I'll show you some of that here shortly. So Peter's talking about these people who deny that God ever even intervened in the flood, although it's interesting. You can find seashells throughout Texas There's other parts that you can go see that at one time, this place had water. It had water that that allowed seashells to be deposited. In any event, they deny the flood. They deny God ever did anything. There is no God. Verse 5 is where I left off. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. So that's creation. They're willfully ignorant of creation. They purposefully shut their eyes and ignore the historical and biblical evidence of creation. And it says was formed out of water and by water. So they first deny that God created creation and God did create everything by his word alone. Verse six, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So I showed you that they also deny the flood. And it's interesting, where did all the water come from? I mean, before that time, in Noah's building the ark, it had never even rained before. There had never been rain on the earth. And Noah's going around trying to tell people, you need to repent, you need to turn to the one true God. They all said, look at this crazy guy. He's out building a boat in the desert. (laughs) What's he talking about a flood? Of course, then when the rains came and the door shut on the boat, too late for them. So that's what he's referring to, earth being flooded with water. Nobody was left other than Noah and his seven relatives that got on the boat. Verse 7, but the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire. So it says the present heavens and earth. So that's even the stars and the galaxies, the whole universe. It's all being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So there's going to be another world cataclysmic event. The whole world system that we know in earth, it is going to be totally destroyed by fire, not a flood. So I got bad news for all the climate change enthusiasts. They're not going to be able to prevent it. 
They can keep doing whatever the craziness that they're doing and talking about, but they're not going to be able to do it. Fire will be the judgment for non-believers. Let me show you some verses on that real quick. I could cover you up with verses, but I'll just show you a few. I'm going to go over to Isaiah 66. I'll just go over there real quick. Isaiah 66, and I'll start in in verse 15. It says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and with his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. So there's going to be a lot of non-believers who don't make it through, but God will deliver believers out of the world first. And I'd spent a lot of time talking about the rapture of the church when we studied 1 Thessalonians 4. If you weren't present for that, go back and listen to that lesson. But the way this happens is believers are taken out, both dead believers, dead Christians, and Christians who are alive are raptured out, in my view, before the seven-year tribulation begins. There's others who would say that it happens three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation, and there's others that say it happens at the end. If you want more clarification on that, go back and listen to the lesson where we spent some time talking about that in detail. But I'll also show you Malachi 3. I'll just go over there, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. So this book of remembrance, this is the book of life that we're going to read about when I get over to Revelation 20 in just a minute. It says, And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you again will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So God knows. God knows who has a heart to serve him and who doesn't, and he is going to rescue believers before the judgment. So then what's going to happen in the order of events? you got the rapture. The Christian believers, dead and alive, get raptured up. That's not the second coming. We go up and join Jesus in the clouds. Then there's a seven-year tribulation where judgment is poured out on the earth. So remember, who's left during the tribulation are all non-believers. Non-believers go into the tribulation. There's 144,000 witnesses, evangelism that takes place. I'm not going to give you the whole story. I've given you parts of it as we've studied. I'm giving you a very high level of the order of things. So you go through this judgment. At the end of the tribulation, there will be people who have come to faith. They will then move into the thousand-year reign of Christ called the Millennial Kingdom. We will reign with him. So the second coming happens after the seven-year tribulation and before the thousand-year millennium. And now let me just take you over to Revelation 20 to give a little detail on what that looks like. Let me go over there real quick, and that's going to set up the rest of what we're going to be reading today in our lesson. So I'm over in Revelation chapter 20, and I'm hitting this at a high, high level. There's a lot that needs to be explained in chapter 20. We'll study this down the road, but let me just read it to you. 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. That's Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. That's where I said Satan would be bound up for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan is not even around during the millennial kingdom. But what we'll see is even without his influence on the earth during the thousand year reign of Christ, there will still be people. This just shows don't blame Satan for everything. We are screwed up, all of us. It's just believers that go into the millennial kingdom. It's human beings. They continue to have babies. They continue to raise families. A thousand years goes by. And by the time you get to the end, you got a group of people who are rebelling against Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. And so Satan's going to be released. We're going to read. Satan's going to be released just shortly. He's going to gather these rebellious humans together to try to attack Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem And the battle doesn't last long, so let me read on. I'm just setting this up. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these are the people who were not raptured out. And these are people who came to faith during the tribulation. Some of them were killed. You can see they had not worshipped the beast or the image. That's the Antichrist. They had not received the mark of the Antichrist on their forehead, which allowed them to participate in commerce. Some of them were martyred. And these people, they came to life and they reigned with Christ in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. That's what that's talking about. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So do you see all the non-believers at the end of the tribulation, they're in judgment, they're gone, they don't go into the millennial kingdom, they're dead. Remember, all believers are raised. Everybody who believes is with Christ. Dead non-believers are dead. They're just dead for a thousand years. But after the thousand years, they're going to come to life. We see in verse 5, they're going to be resurrected. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the believers who are now with Christ. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Those are believers. Over these, the second death has no power. The second death is the judgment or eternal separation from God. So believers don't go through the second death. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. So that's what I told you. He's going to be released just for a little while. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So they're trying to get away from Christ as far as they can. Christ is in Jerusalem reigning. And these are people who are not believers during the millennium that now want to rebel against Jesus Christ. And so Satan's going to try to gather them together. We see in verse 8, gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So there's a lot of them. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, that's of the believers, and of the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The war doesn't last long. They're gone. It's over. 
Verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are also. I didn't read to you, but if we would have read at the end of chapter 19, the beast is the Antichrist and the false prophet does miracles to try to show that the Antichrist is God. It's interesting that Satan kind of set up this situation where it looks like the triune God. You got Satan, you got the Antichrist, which is like Christ, and then you got the false prophet who's kind of like the Holy Spirit. You got this triune thing trying to claim to be God, basically. But the beast, being the Antichrist and the false prophet, had previously been thrown in the lake of fire. Satan is released for a little while. Now he's thrown back in, and it says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the end of the false kingdom of Satan. That's the end. Now, here's where the judgment of non-believers comes in. Verse 11, and I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, whose presence earth and heaven have fled away. We're going to get into that in just a minute. And no place was found for them, and I saw the dead, so these are dead unbelievers, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So they are judged based on their works. They're judged on the basis of their deeds. This is exactly how they wanted to be judged. They didn't want to receive the free gift of salvation and forgiveness of their sins from Jesus Christ. They wanted to do it their way. They wanted to be judged by their own lives. And that's how God is going to judge them. And we're going to see what happens to every one of them. So the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So these books are going to be opened. It's going to have their whole life. And God's going to judge each one of them on the basis of their whole life. And what we're going to see is basically, first you look in the book of life and you see if the debt was canceled. And if the debt's canceled, then you're good. You're in heaven forever with God. If you're not in the book of life, then you're judged according to your works that are shown in these other books. And that's the great white throne judgment. Let's just see how it plays out. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. I'm in verse 13. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. This is not believers. These are unbelievers. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's what I told you earlier. The second death is eternal separation from God, the lake of fire. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So none of them make it. So if you think you're going to make it on your own, we already know how it ends. Here it is right here. You're not going to make it. And then chapter 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, meaning the old order, have passed away. No more death, no more tears, no more sin. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And it goes on. And let me just skip down to verse 22. 
It says, and I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it for the glory of God has illuminated it and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. So it's always accessible to those who make it into the new heaven and new earth. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So let's go back over to the text for today. I know that was long, but we've never done that before. So I wanted to lay that out for you, particularly when we're reading this text in Second Peter today, because that's what Peter is talking about. At the end of the millennial kingdom, the universe is going to be destroyed, and then there's going to be a new earth and a new heaven, and believers are going to reign with Jesus Christ. So let's go on to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Pick up where we left off. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So God's sense of time, it's totally different from ours. This is similar to what's written in Psalm 90, verse 4. There's no time limitation with God. God really has a timeless perspective. But Christ's return is imminent in God's perspective, okay? When you're looking at eternity, even though we've now gone 2,000 years since Christ was here, it's still imminent because this is nothing. This is a short period of time compared to eternity. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God is working everything according to his plan and according to his schedule. The reason for this delay is God is merciful and he's long suffering. He's patient towards all sinners. He wants to give people time to repent and come to faith so that they can avoid this eternal destruction. And by the way, that's why we're all left here. After we come to faith, God is patient with sinners and he wants to use us to help bring others to faith. But at the end of the millennial kingdom, we saw the present earth and heaven. They're all going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And as I pointed out to you, believers are going to live with God forever. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So do you see this? This is not just the earth, but the stars, the intergalactic space that's out there. There's going to be this atomic destruction. A nuclear holocaust is going to take place, and it's going to happen with a roar, this rushing sound, and all the elements are going to be burned up. That's everything. Everything. There's going to be eternal judgment on unbelievers, but everything in the material world is going to be destroyed. That's civilization, natural resources, the ecosystems. This is the ultimate global warming. It's all going to be destroyed. And there's not a thing anyone can do to stop it. Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter's saying in light of God graciously protecting us as believers from this terrible judgment, 
we ought to be living our lives very obediently and spending more time thanking Jesus for what he's done for us. And we should be focused on obtaining a well-done, good and faithful servant from him as part of our eternal rewards that we read about in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 10. And we can do this by bringing people to faith quicker. You see this looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? That day is going to come about when all God's elect have become believers. And so we've got to do our part by actively working with God and be available to help bring others to faith so all the people that God has elected can come to belief. That's our job. He works in and through us to do that. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth. We're not looking for the Republicans to win election. We're not looking for Democrats to win election. We're not looking for if we just get the right people in office, America's going to save us. There's no America in Revelation, okay? America's not going to save us. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteousness dwells. Do you see that? Dwells. That means permanent residence. That is going to be our permanent home, an entirely new universe. No sin. It's unlike anything that has ever been known before. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him. You see that? Christ is going to find us. Be diligent to be found by Christ in peace, spotless, and blameless. So we need to be found having a saving personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We should be striving for the highest level of integrity and holiness forsaking sin and living the way God wants us to live so that people see us differently and want to know more, want to understand more about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. So he hadn't come yet because he wants more people saved. This is quite a different perspective from false teachers, particularly as he described them where we read last week, over in chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, he said, They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that they never cease from sin. They have hearts trained in greed, forsaking what's right. They've gone astray, on and on. What a contrast. We want to be found by Christ in peace, spotless and blameless, it says in verse 14. I'm picking back up in 15, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you also in all his letters. So here we have Peter referring to the apostle Paul, and he's saying, look, all his letters, Peter's endorsing all Paul's writings. Peter's saying Paul's letters were given to him by God. All his teaching is inspired by God in every one of his letters. Paul was given divine wisdom from the Holy Spirit. In his letters, he spoke what God told him to speak. He says, speaking in them of these things. So Peter's saying, I'm telling you the same thing that Paul's been telling you. You've heard it before. Although he does say, in which are some things hard to understand, which I love. Here's the apostle Peter saying, look, there is some scripture that is really hard to understand. And it takes the Holy Spirit to help you understand them. 
But he is saying that Paul's writings, as well as his, are inspired. They're equivalent to the Old Testament and the rest of Scripture. Some of Scripture is hard to understand when you try to wrap your head around the rapture, the second coming, these judgments. You've got to spend time in it, and the Holy Spirit has to open your heart and mind to be able to understand it. But what this does, this allows false teachers to come in. It opens the door for them to now to try to distort it. Because if you don't understand it, the untaught people who are unfamiliar with the truth, they can be led astray very, very easily, is what Peter is saying. He says, which the untaught and unstable distort, so those are the false teachers, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So you've seen people distort salvation and justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. They distort that. They add works. They add, you got to do this. You got to go and do these things. And they turn it into some legalistic thing. They change scripture to say what they want it to say. And Peter's saying, no, don't go with that. There's going to be false teachers that are going to be teaching you that. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, So he's saying, I'm telling you, there's going to be people out there that are going to distort the gospel. They're going to distort scripture. He says, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. He's saying we should have a firm footing by studying the scriptures. Don't be pulled away. Have confidence in the truth. These people will try to have you lose confidence in the truth by distorting Scripture and trying to make it say something that it doesn't. And for believers, this isn't loss of salvation. It just means you're going to be pulled away into false teaching and you're going to have a difficult time in your performance review, not about salvation, but about your rewards and your responsibilities in the kingdom. Unbelievers are easily deceived because they don't have a clue what Scripture says. They don't study it. They don't understand it. So people tell them a bunch of stuff and they're easily deceived because they don't understand Scripture. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. I already read that. Being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grow in your personal relationship with him. And then he finishes out, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So that's the final purpose of all of this. The whole purpose of our even being created is to bring glory to God. That is our purpose. That's our mission, both here and in the eternity to come. Let me just close out with two real short passages I'll show you that kind of summarize that. I'm going to take you over to Ephesians 4, verse 14. And it says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. We've got to mature in our faith. Grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted together and held together, by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So we each have a role as part of the body of Christ. We're being built up. We need to mature in our faith. Quit being babies. Quit being weenies. 
we got to understand the scripture and grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ and realize that we have a job to do. That's why we've been left here. And finally, let me show you Colossians 3, 1 through 4. That's just over to the right of where I just was in Ephesians. It says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where he is right now. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So we got to quit being distracted with everything that's on the news. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So that's where we're going to end up. I went through really quick today, the end of the story, but we know how it ends. We win as believers. We win. We will be with Christ. So let me just sum up what we've studied today. Christ's second coming is clearly taught throughout the Bible. God will intervene in the world order again. He's done it before. He's going to do it again. But as Christians, we're going to be protected. So my question is, how are we, each of us, keeping available to be used by God to draw others into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so that they too can be protected and move into the new heaven and new earth? God desires all to be saved And Christ is going to return when the last of his elect are saved. The present universe is going to be destroyed with fire. So we need to not waste time focused on climate change, climate emergency, whatever it's called. I mean, be good stewards of what God's given to us. But that shouldn't be our focus. Our focus needs to be on being available to be used as an instrument to help save others and bring them to the Lord. You got to know the Bible so you won't be deceived by false teaching. And I'm going to leave each of you and our listeners with one other question. Does the church that you attend today, does it follow the Bible or does it also include some other man-made teaching, some other doctrine that is not found in the Bible? Does it include rituals and sacraments that you can't find in the Bible? If it does, you are being led astray and deceived. Pray to God about it. I'm not telling you what church you need to go to. That's between you and God. But I will tell you, if you're someplace that is teaching things that you can't point to verses in the Bible to support it, it came from a man, it came from somebody else that says God told him this, whatever it is, if you can't point to Scripture to support it, you're in the midst of false teaching. And I'll just leave it at that. You need to pray about that and get yourself someplace where you can get good, solid biblical teaching and then get to work. We all have a job to do. Find out what God wants you to do to help build his kingdom and bring him glory. So with that, that's the end of this book of 2 Peter. And while 1 and 2 Peter are pretty short, as you could see, there is a lot in both of these two very short epistles. So love to hear your comments, how we might apply this. What are we going to do differently when we leave today? So, Larry. Yeah. I was listening to a sermon yesterday by a pastor, and, and he always used the term, don't dilly-dally. And for those of us who are in the room that are old enough that remember the term, don't dilly-dally, you know, yep. he would end all conversations with that about being more bold in the Word and pointing believers to that. Acceptance is a big part of my life. And what I have to understand is that not everybody gets it at the same time, you know. But to be patient and gentle and kind, 
difficult sometimes to talk to people who are understanding some sort of God in their own life, a higher power, as they call it in the room where I attend. Yep, the 12 steps. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's hard, but every night that's what I pray. And every morning I get up is to pray to God to bring them along and that I'm just a gentle servant to point them in the right direction because it's aggravating. It's just difficult sometimes to talk to people, and they get some, but they don't get all. And I'm trying to point them in the right direction. I think you make a really good point, and I think that's something we all ought to take away from this lesson and what you just said. Who are we each praying for all the time? What unbelievers out there are we praying for? And if you don't have somebody that's an unbeliever that you're praying for, hopefully every day you need to get one. (laughs) Hopefully you even have more than one. Because you're right. Look, we weren't born believers. Somebody poured themselves into each one of us somehow and shared the gospel with us. And each of us probably had people praying for us. When I do share the gospel with people and they become believers then, Just about every time I ask them, who's been praying for you? And a lot of times they'll say, oh, my mom or my grandmother. It's interesting. I hear that a lot. And I tell them, I want you right now, go call your mom or your grandma and tell them that you just put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Thank them for their prayers. So who are we praying for? I appreciate you bringing that to our to-do list. We need to be praying for unbelievers. Thank you. Great point. Did Peter and Paul reconcile? I mean, because Peter's pretty much in this second Peter, he's pretty much giving Paul the, hey, everything that he's been teaching is spot on. Where do you think they... Didn't they have a falling out at one point? No, they didn't have a falling out. Now, at one point, Paul corrected Peter when Peter was with some Gentiles and he was eating and doing some things with Gentiles, which were just fine. And when some of the Jews showed up, Peter kind of distanced himself to act like, oh, you know, I hope you didn't see that I was doing some things that are certainly okay with the Gentiles, but I know maybe you don't look good. And Paul got on him and said, hey, that's not right. You can't act like that. Now, that didn't go on. Peter actually knew, yeah, you're right. Maybe that's what you were remembering. There's nothing in Scripture that says they had a falling out or didn't see eye to eye. Now, there are people who try to say Paul taught a easy believism type of gospel, like just place your faith in Jesus Christ and you're saved and you don't have to do anything, no works. James says, no, show me your faith by your works. Faith without works is dead. And so people try to say they were in conflict. And we studied James. We spent weeks studying James. And I showed you how that was not accurate portrayal of them. And it's interesting from my perspective, coming from growing up as a Roman Catholic, but no longer being, when Roman Catholics will call Peter the first pope. And here he's saying everything that Paul says is from God. And you go over and Paul is very clear that it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, not works. Peter is saying, yes, everything that Paul said is from God is true. So you got, in their view, the first pope saying yes. And yet you've had popes since then that have distorted that. So I find that sort of interesting just as an aside.
which is why I point those things out as I go along, because they were certainly things that were taught to me differently growing up as a Catholic that I've now come to realize was not accurate. Did that help? Did that answer? No, that's fascinating. Yeah. Do you want to add anything to that? I mean, that's just Galatians 2.11 where Paul confronts Peter, but I think it's neat when he's in 2 Peter 3, he says, as he does all the other scriptures, he equates Paul's writing as scripture. And that's a powerful statement. I know we covered a lot. Anything on the end times, and I just touched it, and every time we do, I just try to touch the end times at a very high level to just help you kind of get a feel for the way this all is going to end. We will study Revelation eventually, and we'll spend a lot of time in it. Any questions on that or confusion or terminology that I use that is maybe confusing? I think it's good that you keep referring back to it because it it is confusing. So I like it that you keep reminding us of how it plays out, I think. It's helpful for me. And what kept ringing in my ears and my head when we were just going through this is if you're seeking, you need to be actively seeking. Don't be passive about it. Get this figured out. Don't delay. No dilly-dally. Dig in. Find the right place. Seeking needs to be an active pursuit. I know you're talking about seeking people who are not believers yet. But even us as believers, we need to be diligently seeking. And I know I'm talking to the choir. Y'all are here present and people are listening and dialing in. You all are here seeking, trying to understand Scripture. And I commend you for that. But there's a whole lot of, well, our churches are filled with biblically illiterate people. They go and listen to a sermon, and then that's it. So I commend each of you for coming to this, listening each week, even beyond. We ought to be doing things even beyond this Bible study. Take notes. Go look at some of the other scriptures that I refer to that we don't have time to even go into in this short time that we're together each week. Study the Word, because that's the only way you're going to know when you're sitting in a church somewhere or listening to a podcast or whatever that what you're hearing is truth or what you're hearing is the distortion of the truth. That's the only way you're going to know is if you know the Bible. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.